John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 737.GA0514, certificate number 37350, love. 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 Exciting and new. You have to do a very, is that your very white? Love. Do you, think we need, do you think we need to explain love? What are the odds are, that, that a non-human species uh, that we're currently addressing understands what we mean by love? Well, so love is different from attraction. No. Yes, it is. Love is different from uh, fidelity. Love is love is a great band uh, starring Arthur, Arthur Lee. Lee. I'm sure they have our, I'm sure they have forever changes. They do. But I doubt they have the serotonin, whatever we whatever internal thing that's happening in our head that we associate with the the, the subjective emotion of love. They they can't have that. Well, I'm not sure I have it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> I've spent my whole life trying to figure out what it is. I don't know. I'm not 100% well, sure. Love has only brought me pain. But you know it. Like I, I'm sure yeah. all the poets have tried to have tried to tell us what love is, but but how is it different from? I know you can show me. How is it different from a, from like uncomfortable obsession? I, I'm not sure. Like I have love for my daughter. You're talking about the first flush of romantic love. Yeah, that definitely is some kind of brain disease. It's terrible. It's like toxoplasmosis. It makes me think that I want cats and I but don't. You, but you want to survive. Like some people survive it. Like you. Uh, I barely survived it multiple times until I decided to excise it from my emotional makeup. Well, I mean, one of the things about illusory superiority, which we talked about recently on the show, is that everybody thinks their current relationship is above average and, and going to survive. Like every mm, everybody sure in a new relationship did. is in is in this euphoric state of how we're we're gonna we're not going to make all the mistakes. Boy, Do you feel like you've never had that not euphoria? Me, no. As soon as I get into a relationship, I'm in a state of constant panic. Until is the panic localized around any particular outcome, or is it just generalized oh, anxiety? Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't know. Like, like I, I'm always asking, like, what? I guess I'm. I'm guess I'm subjecting every re- relationship to the question: Is this better than not? <laughs> is, that should, that's the lowest possible bar. That should relieve anxiety. <laughs> is this better than than no relationship? But it's never clear. 
You, uh, you are definitely describing many of my junior high crushes, where you're just nervous all the time. Yeah, well, that's ab- about her or him. That seems to be that has persisted with me. Oh, I, I think I think the major question is, I am a introvert and a loner, so I don't necessarily prefer other people to solitude. And so the question of, is this better than solitude, is not easy to answer. But often introverts have a small group of people on the inside where, you know, in uh, in reasonable doses, you know, in sure. reasonable numbers, sure. uh, you are actually able to feel like you have all the the comfort and recharging ability of aloneness with a small group. Well, that's why I, I make the distinction that I also am a loner and there's no other, there's no better word for it. That loner just seems like it, such a, it does seem like you're about to blow up a post office. Yeah. Well that, or it's like, Oh, James Dean, like I'm a loner oh, Dottie, you know, like it just seems like trying to sound cool. But you go beyond introversion. You are, you, you notice that you're happier alone than even with a, a small group of friends. The, the, Do you want me to leave right now? No, no, no. You're fine. You're fine. You're not. You're not irritating me too much. But you know, <laughs> you know, it's the first for all of us. Um, uh, it's why I don't consume media, primarily because I prefer my own imagination to the product of anyone else's imagination. And this is also true of your relationships. You prefer your own imagined, imaginary friends. <laughs> I mean, I like human touch. And so being touched by somebody, I'm not, you know, a lot lot of introverts are like, don't touch me. And I don't feel that way. You can touch me. I'm happy to be touched. But you don't like the blush of first love that includes conversation and just endless, I can't get, I can't learn enough about you. Well, as we've talked before, like I feel that way with Uber drivers. Like as soon as I get into an Uber, I'm like, hey, I get to find out all about this guy's uh, childhood in Madagascar for as long as the drive across town. You love everyone then. I kind of love everybody. You're pan-romantic. As long as I can, at the end of the ride, get out and have the tip paid automatically and then go into the hotel and have the same experience with the hotel front desk clerk and then go up to my room. Like I, I love those brief, intense interactions, but God... I'm so It does it is hard to duplicate that in marriage, I got to say. Yeah. I mean, intense is hard enough, but when you add brief? Yeah. I mean, Hi honey, headed downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> like you know you're going to be see- if all goes best case scenario, you will be seeing this person for 70 years. <laughs> so anyway, I don't, you know, I'm 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 a confirmed bachelor. I mean, my my relationship with my daughter is the first one I've ever had that feels absolutely indispensable. Um because She's the only thing that's ever felt permanent. Um, and so that's, you know, the, that's my only maybe there reference are, point. Well, maybe there are other people out there with whom you could feel that bond. Well, that's what everybody says. Like, oh, you just haven't met Miss Wright yet. But it feels like, true. like I meet her all the time. Hi. By, by the you numbers. You seem great. <laughs> and maybe <laughs> anyway, it's your attitude. Bye. Like when you met your daughter, you realized, well, I just can't leave her in the car and walk into the hotel. Well, yeah, but she was a fat little bug when I first met her. There's no reason that I would have fallen in love with her except for chemicals. The chemicals are a huge part of it. Like the initial euphoria is not an accident that evolution has given us that. She was pretty cute and I didn't want to leave her in the car. So what we need with you is either to give you enough of the brain euphoria, the brain sickness to get over that initial hump of, I should leave her in the car. Yeah, right. That's how all my relationships end. I just... 
get out of the car or she does. Or you need to, maybe you just need to like take the bull by the horns and get into an arranged marriage. Your, your mom is still with us. You know what? An arranged marriage would have been perfect for me. It's and not I, too late. I think about it all the time. If I had just at 16 years old been betrothed to the girl down the street, I liked her just fine. We'd probably still be pretty happy. Because once you go with the idea, well, here's my, well, here's my wife, I guess. Yeah, right. Like it's the same with, well, here's my newborn daughter, I guess better make the best of it. A lot of the... A lot of my friends that have long-lasting and successful relationships, when I hear the story of how they met and how they got married, it's kind of, here's my wife, I guess. In a lot of cases, right? And not, not in a... You heard, have you heard my wife tell this story? <laughs> Just well, recently, in fact. We were talking about this on the yeah, cruise, where she, right? Where, where, uh, where you guys... We went, on, we went to one movie, went to High Fidelity with John Cusack. And she described the experience as waking up with us waking up with a gasp and a startle and going, oh my God, I'm going to marry Ken Jennings. Yeah, the following day she woke up from a nap with the certainty that, well, I guess I have a husband. But the certainty also was accompanied by a lot of like surprise and well, maybe horror. Well, wouldn't you be if you had to marry me? <laughs> I mean, that's she's not wrong. Oh no, <laughs> but but a lot of a lot of my friends where I really like their relationship, there there is that sense of like, well, we didn't exactly fall passionately in love so much as that it seemed right. Well, those are the good relationships because yeah. the, the brain sickness subsides. Yeah. And then if, if really you guys were just, if you're fighting and then having great makeup relations, like that's a little volatile. Right. Whereas if the brain sickness subsides and it turns out it's just someone kind of inoffensive that you can hang out with. Right. Those relationships survive. Well, you know, the, the thing is that I, I always put, and you're right, it might be my attitude. I always put an artificial choke on how I, how romantic I felt about the women that I really liked as friends. So I've always said, my best friend has always been a woman. Lots of palling around and, you know, high five and going on adventures and stuff. But I would always yeah, resist. You're, you're used to um, putting up a no-go sign. Yeah. I would say like, oh, no, we shouldn't kiss because it'll ruin our friendship. I was... Very frustrating, I think, to a lot of people over the course of my life. It's. I'm not saying you should have kissed all your friends. No, but if I had kissed one a long time ago and gone like, all right, are we in this? Like, let's go. But I never did. I was always like, can I borrow $30? <laughs> <laughs> so kiss your friends is the is the motto. Should have. Is the, is the advice you would give to the youth of... I should have just married my high school sweetheart. Assuming she's a pain in the ass. Assuming we're talking. <laughs> well, don't kiss her. You <laughs> Too have, late. You kiss the low maintenance person you were already like uh, watching, you know, going on hikes with. Right. That's what I should have done. She was great. Kiss the low maintenance person. All of all of my low maintenance lady friends have been great. Could so, have married them all. Well, Could have 14 wives. Assuming that this still exists in the future, that's good advice. Yeah. But we were not actually going to talk about the emotion of love today. Oh, we weren't? I was not going to try to explain that on a podcast. I was pretty excited. But I thought we were going thought you were going to get somewhere. <laughs> maybe, maybe I was going to come out the other side of this show with a revitalized hope. Let's teach the future not about romantic love, but out of kind of genuine you know, the milk of human kindness, you know, just love for their fellow uh, octopod or so, whatever. So are we talking about the, are we talking about the band love? Because I'm happy to do that too. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about actually the pop art sculpture love. I assume you have seen 
Robert Indiana's most famous work. John, oh, the, love the the sculpture, love. Yes, I of course we're all all of us of a certain age are familiar with the sculpture, love because it was reproduced everywhere all the time. And it's it was reproduced in fairly permanent form, such that even people now fifty years later. Still, you can't walk through a major urban center or, or sculpture park without seeing one of these things where the, the L and the O are stacked on the V and the E. And the, the o, o is akimbo. The O is cocked a little right. sideways for visual interest. Um, they're usually painted red. It's three-dimensional, right? It has yeah, the, depth. Yeah, it's like a, the letters are projected backwards. Now, I remember this image being screen-printed and hung on dorm room walls. It was a keychain. It was a... Yes. It, was, it was kind of like the Garfield of its time. People who have just seen the the sculpture, its longest lasting imprint, are probably surprised would might be surprised to find that it did not originate as a sculpture. It started out as 2D art. Oh really? Uh, yeah, so it was the work of let's let's meet the uh, artist. Robert Indiana was actually born in Indiana, what are the odds? Whoa. And it's not a it's not a, a gnome de guerre. It's totally a gnome de guerre. Oh. Uh, his name was Robert Clark. Uh, he had kind Boring. of a Exactly. He thought it was boring. He said... Bob Clark. He said, the phone book is full of Clarks, hmm. and he wanted to be the only Indiana. So after moving to New York to become an artist, he, in a nod to his Hoosier roots, he changed his name to Robert Indiana. He predates Indiana Jones, <laughs> yeah. although not in the Indiana Jones timeline, but in, no. in our timeline. In the Indiana Jones universe, Robert Indiana might be named after Indiana Jones. Right. But in our timeline, no. Indiana Jones appeared fully formed in 1981. Right. Uh, he had a kind of an unhappy low-income Midwestern childhood, even though he changed his name to Salute It. His family moved like 21 times. Whoa, just within Indiana? <laughs> that's, that's, that's not even, hold on, let me do the math. <laughs> that's every wide spot in the road that's in Indiana. That's not even possible. It's mathematically impossible they to must move have moved 21 times. back to Fort Wayne like 13 of those times. He got out on the GI Bill. He, you know, for three years he was a shipping clerk at Fort whatever. This is, he was a World War II veteran? No, just after, I think, he right. was But there born still was a GI Bill. 1920, yes, but you could, you know, in the late 50s, between World War II and Korea, he sat behind a desk for the Air Force, and then on the GI Bill was able to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, mm. and later to study art uh, in Europe as well. He went to Scotland, I believe. And then uh, joined Second City and was on the original <laughs> cast of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> he did the Fringe Festival. <laughs> no, he moved to New York, which is what aspiring artists did back then. And he worked at an art supply store, which is, I'm sure, what su- aspiring artists still do now. Right. And he happened to be uh, putting a Matisse print in the window of his art supply store on West 57th Street. When and who he should- said, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> My kid can draw that. No, even better, uh, a handsome young man named... Uh, Ellsworth Kelly, walking mm-hmm. along, saw him in the window and came in and started a conversation about the Matisse print. And uh, Was this a romantic? It uh, was. Robert Indiana and, uh, and Ellsworth Kelly, two of the great mid-20th century American artists, started a relationship that would last uh, for almost a decade. Uh, they were both, besides being romantic partners, they were both pioneers of what has become known as hard-edge painting. Hard edge. That sounds like something you might find on 4chan. Yeah, in addition to their romantic <laughs> life, which was also pretty hard edge, I bet. No, hard edge painting just means uh, color fields that, that meet at straight lines. Oh, and, I see. And in Kelly's work, at least, and often in Indiana's as well, the, the colors are often chosen to provide a, such a stark contrast that you get kind of a, a op art effect reminiscent of uh, 
you know, a, a commercial printing or something. So is this like uh, Rauschenberg or, or Mondrian? At the same time, so it's, it's influenced by Mondrian. At the same time, artists like Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns are just starting the movement. I mean, this is the 50s, so they're just starting the movement that kind of turns what was the Dada of the 20s, updates it for the 50s and creates what we now call pop art. Ah. Um, Rauschenberg was doing these combines that where he would kind of do collages of lots of different 2 and 3D items, and they would include common found objects of mass mid-century culture. Uh, uh-huh. You know, product comic boxes books. and comic book panels and such like. And this was a big deal. Uh, I guess you see the... I think some of the Cubists were doing collage with newspaper panels and cracker boxes and stuff. So it was not unheard of. And it all, you know, the wellspring for it all is the Dada movement of the 20s, where famously, just to kind of point up the absurdity of everything through the absurdity of art, you would have artists like Marcel Duchamp actually introducing humor and irony into work for the first time. He would, uh, you know, he, he took a commercial bathroom urinal, turned it upside down and hung it on a gallery wall and called it Fountain. Uh-huh. And the whole joke is, you know, really? What, you know, what is art if, if this is art? Right. You know, it's, this it's, is not a pipe. It's the, exactly. It's, it, this is not a pipe is kind of a joke. Yeah. Right. It's, it's got a joke structure. It shows you a pipe and says, this is not a pipe. And there's an incongruity there. And so humor and irony are brought into this very serious world of the fine arts for the first time. But a lot of that irony is at the expense of art. Yes. Because it's a little pond these people are, are working in, right. and, and all their critiques against society to them begin as critiques against... <laughs> the guy working in the studio next door. <laughs> yeah, the gallery that won't let them exhibit, because come on, right. Marcel, that's an upside-down urinal. Right. Um, but, but pop art begins to develop out of this idea that kind of this kitschy mid-century stuff does have a place in art, that it has its own beauty... Not just as a, you know, that it's not just a statement about, whoa, check out what I did. I put a comic book panel on a gallery wall, but also that there is something kind of beautiful about it. Because this was an era when advertising was also now, I mean, starting to begin to think of itself as more than just commercial. Yeah, this wasn't an option before the 20th century, really. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't mass culture, there wasn't printed stuff that, that, was not art, but which art could appropriate, really. Um, suddenly there's cereal boxes and newspaper ads and travel posters. How does Norman Rockwell factor into, I mean, I remember at a certain point in my own early 80s, the kind of rehabilitation of Norman Rockwell as a as an artist instead of a commercial painter. Yeah, there was such a big gulf between commercial artists yeah. who produced magazine covers and such like, and fine artists who were pushing the boundaries on gallery walls. When, 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 uh, when Norman Rockwell did those paintings of, of like school integration, he started to do kind of more editorial work. Norman Wokewell. I don't think that he, I, I don't think it was successful in, in rehabilitating him, but at a certain point, I remember the arts community, like, I don't know, adopted a kind of like cool kid radical posture in saying Rockwell was in fact, you know, this stuff is real art and not just, but you don't see his work appropriated or re-envisioned right. by pop putting art. mustaches on, on the, the Four Freedoms guy or the Thanksgiving dinner grandma. Right. Uh, but it is, I think it is kind of the, maybe it's a recognition that uh, 
that low art is okay. You know, yeah. that was kind of the discovery of camp, the sensibility that maybe started in certain kinds of intellectuals and also gay subcultures right. that, uh, that design and art objects could just be a signifier for a certain kind of ironic lifestyle. Uh, that you could love something bad, but it wasn't that you were dumb. It right. was that you were so smart that you got what was great about it. And they actually did think this stuff was good. You know, they thought it was unfair that people thought Tiffany lamps were a bit much or that universal horror movies were schlock. You know, they, they, they genuinely liked this stuff. I guess it's the beginning of guilty pleasures. Yeah. Um, and so if you genuinely, I think Roy Lichtenstein didn't give enough credit to the comic artists he was ripping off in his big Bende dot comic panels, uh-huh. but I'm sure he, I'm sure he liked that stuff unironically. And that's why he worked in that idiom. Uh, I assume that people recognize that Rockwell was a painter of lively characters and uh, evocative scenes. And, but it did lead to a divide in art and it actually led to a divide between Robert Indiana and Ellsworth Kelly, because even though they both liked these hard edge, high contrast kind of op art canvases, Kelly was becoming more and more minimalist. He thought modernism should strip things away from art. Whereas Indiana was very tempted by the pop artists, Lichtenstein's comic book panels and Warhol's celebrity portraits. They all had the hard, bright colored edges, but they were working in this kind of kitschy idiot. See, this is the this is the way I spent my 20s where some dispute over art would end your relationship because it was like I can't it's not a like a democrat or republican thing. It's like that experimental theater piece was great. No it wasn't. It was trash. I can't live with you anymore. I think I'm starting to see some of the <laughs> the romantic issues you alluded to. <laughs> well, uh, it actually did. It was a huge deal for that particular relationship because it was big in the art scene when Indiana started putting words in his paintings. At the 1964 New York World's Fair, Robert Indiana put up one of his first famous works, a big sign that said, Eat, kind of in the Eat, like at, Joe's, yeah, yeah. eat at Joe's style of a, of a highway eatery. Yeah. Um, and it just said, Eat. And it was something his, it, it, for him, it was very personal. It was something his mom. I guess his mom's love language was shoveling food into eat, their kids. Eat, eat. So it would always be eat something. And in fact, her last word on her deathbed was eat. Really? Which is a little confusing. My dad used to say, have a banana. And it became a thing that my sister and I would say to each other. because his, his Why a banana? His, Couldn't it be an apple? No, his solution to every problem was to have a banana. Because of potassium? I guess. He just felt like a banana was a simple and nutritious way to get on down the road. So when we would be like getting ready to leave, he would say, have a banana. And then my sister started to say it to me, like have a banana, ironically. And then I would reply, you have a banana. And then I started to say to my kid, have a banana. Do you guys eat more bananas than most per capita because of your watchword? We eat bananas, but we say have a banana an awful lot more than we actually have bananas. Is banana a signifier for go to the bathroom, grab a snack? Yeah. And it's also... It's also kind of a way of saying, like, F off. <laughs> you know, like, if somebody's going off on something, you can just say, have a banana, and it just means get out of here. Well, speaking of F off, like, the eat sign was such a big success that Roush, uh, Indiana, Robert Indiana, started to experiment with other small words in his art. And Kelly thought this was just the worst kind of sellout, trashy thing wow. you could do 
that you know you're flirting with Warhol the second you start to put sure text in your art. And was Warhol regarded as trash by these higher art dudes or I mean he was very successful at creating a mythos and the fact that his work was selling I guess that could cut both ways. Mm-hmm. But specifically among guys like Kelly who th- thought that the movement was toward less. Right. You know that uh that we can strip things away that this should just be three stripes, you know Jasper Johns. Right. Uh, a blurry or uh Rothko, you know, a, yeah. a blurry yellow rectangle or whatever. Um you know, it really offended his sensibility and apparently the relationship could not survive that. So we actually have two different stories of how Robert Indiana's love work came to be. You've you've the seen official those, one and the unofficial one. You've seen those Rothkos in person. I have. And you know the experience of spending years looking at them in books and going, that's dumb. And then you see it in real life and they're astonishing. I find that they true of Ellsworth Kelly as well, because you see one of these, you know, a, a slab of orange against a, a really jarring super blue stripe. Uh, you know, you see it in a book and you're like, yeah, this is just packaging or this is a sports logo. Right. It's supposed to go in a bank lobby. Exactly. But then when you see it in oils on a wall and you're confronting the fact of somebody producing something that eye-popping yeah. with non-industrial, you know, with his hands right. instead of with some mass-produced thing. Uh, very, very impressive to me. I, st- I spent 45 minutes looking at a Rothko one time, and I, and I was asking myself even at the time, like, why? Why? Why is this? Why is it so incredible? And do you find the same thing with pop art? Like, may- maybe you're an Ellsworth Kelly in this side of this of this sad gay breakup. Like, do you find that looking at a... Uh, Warhol sm- uh, uh, silkscreen or... Well, so I'd, I find that work is decorative. I like it a lot, and I actually kind of decorate with it. I like Mary Mecco prints. I like, I like um, you know, that love thing that maybe is too ubiquitous, but eat I might use as a, as a decorative element. And, and I kind of object to people thinking of fine art as decorative, you know, my mom... A, a penny to match the couch. Yeah, right. Like that kind of thing. Like, oh, this, you know, this goes with the bank or this matches the matches the color palette of my house. I, I, I really don't like that way of thinking of, of art, I guess, with a capital A. But pop art, I really like it that way, you know? We've been, we've been trying to figure out, you know, art that doesn't suck in our house. And I think my main criteria is always like, what can I look at... The Rothko thing. What can yeah. I look at for an hour at a time? What can I look at for years at a time? And keep finding new things. Exactly. In it. Yeah. And I'm not sure the word love screen printed is gonna you're gonna continue to find like depths to it. But that, I think that is the pop art objection that right. that you get the because it's a joke you get it the first time you hear it and it's not funny like many jokes it's not as funny again. But it is graphical and colorful and fun in somebody else's house. Right. I don't think you'd put the word eat up on the wall either. But I don't know how we arrange that for you to um, always have pop art in other people's houses. Yeah. They don't want to look at it all the time either. Well, some of them do. Maybe maybe their sense of humor and irony is not as refined as ours. So here are the two versions of where love comes from. 85% of the people in the world think that their sense of humor and irony is above average. There actually is a funny one of those. I didn't mention this when we talked about illusory superiority, but talking about friends art, it reminds me that uh something like 
I don't know, like 70% of people believe they have more friends than their friends do. And in fact, almost all people have fewer friends than their friends do. Mm-hmm. It's known as the friendship paradox. And it has to do with the fact that if you have a friend, that's very that's more likely than not to be someone who has many friends because they have you as a friend. Oh. So, And because of that, because your friends are more likely to be people with big friend groups right. by, by the numbers, most people's friends have more friends than they do. Interesting. Even though it seems like the numbers wouldn't add up. Most of most people's friends have more friends than they have. <laughs> For the record, we hasten to add and remind you anytime we get the opportunity, although this is a podcast about the end of the world, we do not believe the end of the world is happening now. A, a, a pandemic with a paltry 0.8% fatality rate or whatever it is, is certainly a great tragedy but not a civilization-ending one, luckily. No, we started making this program in anticipation of a giant meteor strike. A wave of blood? It's not yeah. clear where it originates, but it would be it would be 30 feet tall. Yeah, Cthulhu rising up out of the, yeah, the uh, el- Gulf of Mexico. The Elder Gods, um, some kind of uh, mutated, not virus, but like mutated... Um, what walrus the size of a skyscraper? Yeah, that's the uh, that's the apocalypse that we uh, that we're referring to when we talk about uh, the justification for the omnibus project. Because we were raised on Japanese monster movies right. and comic books. Uh, the the COVID nineteen coronavirus uh, plague is a bummer and uh, definitely a deal changer for the year 2020-21. Something to grieve, whether you've lost someone or just something, because we all have. But fortunately for us, not the end times. And we want to express to you, Ken and I, our appreciation for you, the futurelings of the world who continue to listen to our program and enjoy it. We hope that we bring you some lighthearted distraction and a lot of talk about Whatever it is that we talk about on this show, cheese and... It's mostly cheese. Cheese. It's like 80%... Dancing girls. It's 80% cheese. Yeah. We do talk about cheese and mail trucks. And mail trucks made out of cheese, probably at some Mm. kind of Wisconsin Mm. dairy festival. Mm. Uh, Thank you for those of you who support the show uh, at patreon.com slash omnibus project. It is a great relief to us and and life-affirming. And uh, for the record, although we don't think the pandemic is the thing that ends civilization, we think it might be the murder hornets. Murder hornets are a bummer. Uh, They behead bees, which is a bummer, and it's only a matter of time before they learn to behead humans. Figure out how to behead us. Like, really, they're working their way up. And once they get to us, it's over. So it's probably the murder hornets. But just be, be reassured, it is not the pandemic. In our lifetime, this is not even the first murder bee to threaten to... Ruin all of civilization. You're talking about the Africanized killer bees? Yeah, right. Yeah. They were sweeping up from South America. There is no new news cycle under the sun. I know. Every unprecedented seeming disaster is an extremely precedented disaster. Well, now, now that they're closing down all the meat processing plants, now it's famine again. Now we're back to famine. It's not famine. We'll oh. just have to eat vegetables. Does that seem worse? My God. It's worse than famine. Animal do you think I am? Anyway, we appreciate your support of Omnibus Project. We've noticed definitely that in the um, in this time when fewer people are commuting, it turns out that commuting is when people a lot of people listen to podcasts. So we're grateful that you are 
listening to the Omnibus Project, and if it is within your uh, within your means to support the show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject, uh, we're also grateful for that support. We are delighted that in a time of a lot of economic insecurity that it uh, we have not, although listenership has dipped with commuters that... Um, it's, pa- dipped, it's dipped across all podcasts. Yes. And, but Patreon support has not. Yeah, like, that's which is, wonderful. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's that, lovely. That uh, the people are loyal. Thank you. And uh, when civilization returns to normal, Ish. to whichever version of normal it is that it returns to, let me encourage you, if if you have to go back to work, by all means, go back. And if you want to go back to work, by all means, go back. But if you are able to stay home and work, and your boss is telling you to come back to work, resist. Tell him to go uh, suck an egg. Say, suck an egg. But you do have to simulate podcast commute listening. Right. By um, puttering around your house for 20 minutes or however long your commute was, making car noises with your mouth, and listening to Omnibus. Get one of those beds that looks like a race car and spend spend a half an hour uh, in the morning and a half an hour at night going while listening to the Omnibus Project. The two versions of where love comes from. In one version, uh, first of all, Robert and Dan is, there's two different commissions. One, he's asked to uh, help renovate this old Christian science church in Ridgefield, Connecticut, which is becoming a museum. Now, uh, Robert Indiana, when he was Robert Clark, was raised going to Christian scientist churches. Uh-huh. Uh, a callback. You may remember the reading room entry. And always remembered you know, the, the God is love rhetoric that he would often hear in church. And in fact, this museum had a big wall decoration that said God is love that had to be replaced by something to make it into a museum. And so he was thinking, what can I replace this with that does not kind of desecrate a meaningful slogan from my childhood? Right. You don't want to, you don't want to paint over God is love and replace it with the eat. Right. Have or, a banana. Or paint over God is love and replace it with some awful, depraved, uh, right. uh, I don't know, what's the most... American flag in P. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so, he, so that's what he's thinking about love as an element in his work there. And then in 1964, uh, the, New, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, MoMA, pays him $1,000 to design its Christmas card. And for them, having this... this uh, for the church, what he ended up doing is swapping the God is love thing and writing love is God. Oh, yeah. So, you know, a little twist. That feels a little 60s, right? It does, because it, uh, you know, on the one hand, it seems like you're keeping the the, the the theological import. Right. But you've really turned it on its head by right. saying what's most important, or or in a word, all you need right. is love. But also you have taken, I mean, God is causal of love. Yes, he's been taken off his throne right. and become just a result of or, something we could all get by loving each other. Right, a result or or even a euphemism. Yes. Maybe there is no God, but what if it were but love? Love, bro. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Whoa. So we should, and we should talk about the counterculture influence on why this became popular, because I'm sure that's a huge part of it. But the Christmas card was a square, so he didn't have room to write... Love is God, or indeed anything horizontal, because Christmas cards have to fit in a square. And so that's when he came up with the idea of what if you just 
split the word in half, stacked the low on the V. Uh, it seemed a little dull, so he tilted the O. Good. And that was... That's ma- the thing. That was Merry Christmas from MoMA 1964. And it became a huge hit. The colors of that original silkscreen are, are not too different from what you see today. Often today, the, uh, the letters, the faces of the letters are red. And then if you go around to the side of them, they're painted in blues and greens. And that mimics the actual silkscreen of this, of this first Christmas card. Uh, it, uh, it was red on the front and then the spaces between the letters are kind of a, a pale, like a sky blue and a, and a, I don't know, a lime green or a grass green. And he always explained that as being a relic of his Midwestern childhood. His dad worked at a Phillips 66 station. And so, and his dad actually would die in 65, the same year that the love design was catching on. But it's also Christmas. Right. So you've got red and green. That's true. I didn't even think about that. But in Indiana's own reminiscence, like because it, you know, shortly thereafter, it became part of a gallery show he did. Uh, he did a, in 1966, he did a silkscreen of the love design for a gallery show. And there it was uh, the same coloration. His dad had just passed away and he expressed it as, you know, this is, these are the colors of my Midwestern childhood. I want it to look like a gas station sign. I wanted the green of the prairie and the, the, the green and red of the sign, but also the green of the prairie the blue of the sky. Uh, Sounds like a flag of an African nation. It's a, it's a pale enough blue and green that it looks a little like uh, maybe that unfortunate period in the eighties and nineties when sports teams had a lot of teal. Oh yeah. And uh, Miami dolphins colors. Right. Like at least when the African nations have the kind of the classic Rastafarian red, yellow, Uh green, black kind of thing, at least those are like really bright primaries and those are always going to look good. What's the deal with the San Diego Padres? Like, brown is a terrible color for a baseball uniform. Yeah, no no sport should wear brown. I mean, even the Cleveland Browns never wore brown for decades. Right. They were smart and stuck with orange and just said it was brown. But, uh, so so that's that's kind of the public story of where the origin of love. His Christian science upbringing, then this Christmas note. But, uh, in fact... uh, I think he never talked about this publicly, but privately, the, you know, the, the authoritative monograph on his work, according to friends, his first draft for this, which I don't think Momo would have accepted, was in fact a four-letter obscenity right. with the U tilted. Right. Instead for of their the Christmas o. card. Yeah. I don't think they would have put that on the Christmas card. But, <laughs> Fork. But, you know, coming out of eat and, you know, these kind of oh, sure. one-syllable punctuation words that grab the eye. And I think uh, this was a result of his relationship with... Ellsworth Kelly falling apart over the use of text in his art. I think he really wanted to get him, get, get, him. get in one parting shot. Right. He could have said, but <laughs> that's, that's the 11 year old's version of this <laughs> or, or putting poo in the bowling as the bowling screen initials. Uh, but luckily because it was a Christmas commission, it turned from the F word to love. And as a result, uh, a 60s, an iconic 60s image was born. When he put this silkscreen in the show, critics hated it. But right. audiences loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. And, and this was the time when, and so, you know, it, it goes from there. In 1973, this becomes uh, an eight-cent stamp. Oh, right. That's one of the major ways that you see this. Is To this day, I think yeah. there's, a, there's a, a Valentine's Day stamp from the post office that often will have Robert Indiana-like uh, imagery. And, and you can see why from the, as the late sixties turned into the early seventies, 
this kind of love image was successful enough that it would show in art galleries, but also that the U.S. government would appropriate it, right? Like, right. this was the summer of love. Not 72, but 67. 67, was, right. you know, this was the time of that. And so this was a, me- a message that would have, you know, you could put that on your dorm wall and it's still a message from the counterculture. Right. It, I mean, the, think about the number of Beatles songs between 64, 63, and 67 that had love as a major component of the title. Right. right. Lo- love, love me do. Love is God kind of becomes the unspoken. All you need is love. All you need is love, right? That came out in 67 too. And to some degree, people saying this meant, um, I just want to sleep with lots of different casual partners. Right, because it was the sexual revolution too. The, right. uh, we had the pill now and it, it would have been weird to say sex. But love with a fun tilted O is anodyne enough that it seems to kind of, it's fun enough that it sums up, in bright colors, it sums up kind of the hippie aesthetic. Right. But the establishment can also say, and there were, you know, you saw this a lot from, you know, even pastors at the time were saying, it's true, all you need is love, you know, as a way of trying to find common ground with the counterculture. So because it's such a stripped down statement, love in a fun font, it can mean what you want it to mean. Love in a fun font. That was a great Eurythmics tune. Love in the time of fun fonts. <laughs> so it can, be, it can be all things to all people. Right. And it really benefits by this. It's the same reason the smiley face in the 70s, you know, it's anodyne enough that it's, it's kind of a cool kid thing. But also, also, also your grandma can be like, oh, love. Right. But oh, it's, a, and it's a little a seditious too circle. because it implies it's the opposite of war. Right. Yes. So it's a it's protest art. Yeah. Even but even as protest art, it's a little bit anodyne. What right. can, what is everybody for? What if we all loved each other? What if there wasn't any more war? I yeah. mean, you don't have to have a specific opinion on Vietnam to to enjoy a postage stamp that says love. Right. So it's the perfect message for the time. And in 1970, uh, the Indianapolis Museum wants Robert Indiana to do something for a sculpture garden, and this is his big hit. So he turns it into a 3D version. Now, isn't that a thing that an artist would not want to just keep rocking their same, the greatest hit? Well, this is what Indiana came to realize. But there, for a few decades, he appears to embrace it, I assume because it's paying the bills. Uh, And, you know, he doesn't have his, artists don't have, fine artists don't have their choice of commissions always. Yeah, right. So once Indianapolis has this in the sculpture garden, you know, every city, it looks great. Every city wants to have love. So at at this point, in our era, there are now, and I'm sure you can see the ruins of them, futurelings, because they're made of Corten steel, a super resilient steel alloy. Uh, There are a hundred different U.S. urban centers that have a love sculpture, at least. Right. I don't believe Seattle does. Can you? No, but, you know, Seattle has the Hammering Man, which is a similar artwork that is in dozens of other cities around the world in different sizes. And that's something that those giant sculptures seem to have in common for me. I mean, I'm not enough of an Alexander Calder uh, aficionado that I can tell. One Calder from another. Yeah, that his, his giant little, his giant elephantine metal things apart. We have, we definitely have one of those here in Seattle, a giant Calder out at the sculpture park. We do. And there was an Oldenburg out there, speaking of, Pop art being funny, this guy that would do big 
puffy yeah, hamburgers right. or stationary, you know, can openers, household items. There are a couple of, there's a, there's an eraser, a typewriter Yeah, we used to have eraser. a typewriter eraser there and it's, now it's been moved to somewhere Paul Alleny. Maybe it's... There, there, I think it was in the front yard of a house in uh, Medina. I, I drove past it one time and looked up and there it was. Although it might have been is that another where it is now, one. or is that when it where it was before? I think it was before the sculpture garden. It was in a it was in a, one of those compounds in Medina. Well, that may have been the one that wound up at the sculpture garden. I bet it was. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, so the, these are a reliable source of income for him. Uh, you know, if I I don't think Seattle has one, but I can picture the one on the corner of Sixth Avenue and. Um, what is that? 47th, 52nd, maybe in, in New York, right in midtown Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, any middle medium sized city will have one in a downtown park or in a museum on museum grounds. He would do occasional, uh, and he would be, he would get paid. I mean, some of these have sold for now $4 million. They're, really? about, they're about 12 feet tall. Uh, he would occasionally do other languages. Uh, I'm surprised that it's not more. I mean, I, I, I guess there's not, um, there's not, any reason why, I mean, they're not difficult to manufacture, but like how much is a Jeff Koons bubble dog? Right. Uh, how big, I guess. I guess, right. They're, they're big. The, the little one I have bookending some of my books on my shelf at home, I think was <laughs> 22 bucks at Sharper Image. But it says here, yeah, balloon dog, uh, a balloon dog sold for 55 million bucks. Oh, wow. oh no, 58 million bucks. Um, I wonder if there's fewer of them. Maybe Indiana should not have made a hundred Love squares, right? His, his Coons's rabbit was ninety-one million. How many? How many balloon dogs were there? I'm sorry to sorry to ask. Um, I guess there are only five balloon dogs, mm. which is yeah, right. Makes them more valuable than the one hundred love statues. And it's not just the statues; it's you know, the 330 million postage stamps right. and, uh, you know, to maintain the minimalism of the work, Indiana never put a copyright notice or any text on his love thing identifying as his. And I think a lot of people felt like it was in the public domain. Right. I mean, legally he didn't give up copyright over the image, but because people just didn't know, that's why all the tchotchkes and the key rings and museum gift shops, a lot of those he didn't benefit by at all. Uh, the cover of love story by Eric Segal, huge bestseller, uh, ripped off his design, and I don't think he saw a penny. Today, it's parodied. There's a Rage Against the Machine album cover right. with Rage and the classical font. You know, it's become enough of the language that you just see the font and you get the joke and the irony. But uh, I think he came to regret being so closely associated with one. I mean, it's a tenet of pop art that the repetition doesn't kill anything, that you're actually summoning something of the mass culture appeal of the detergent boxes or whatever. I mean, Andy Warhol's Campbell soups were 30 cans already. His, right. his Maryland triptych was three Maryland's. Right. So the repetition's good, but I mean, to you, doesn't it cheapen it a little to know that, that you can see the love sculpture in a hundred cities worldwide? Well, it, it really is. Uh, it really is the difference between a one hit wonder and an album oriented band. I mean, Warhol has these, these iconic prints, but he has dozens of them. And so you don't look at a Campbell soup can or Marilyn Monroe or Elvis and think Warhol, you know, what a dope. I mean, we know his name because he, uh, he has so such a varied career. Whereas 
Love is just like a it's just like a band that has one super big hit and never had a follow up. In the case of Robert Indiana, he said that it killed his career. It really? people it wasn't just that people disrespected his work that people would trash him. People started to ignore him. He was he became a Norman Rockwell type commercial artist, right? You know, a designer of a designer of objects instead of an logos. artist. Yeah, a designer of logos exactly. A graphic designer instead of a painter, right? which he did not intend, but he, uh, you know, towards the end of his life, he told an interviewer, love bit me. It was a marvelous idea, but it was also a terrible mistake. It became too popular. It's the reason that a lot of actors don't continue to play or, you know, don't accept a role that is too similar to their, their, their breakout role. Right. Because, because, uh, and it's a reason why they don't get offered those because they, if Sean Connery gets typecast as James Bond, I think he feels like that killed his acting career, even though it made him an icon. And I mean, I guess the I guess it's a good question if 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 Sean Connery had continued to play James Bond, would he have ever done his masterwork? Zardoz. Zardoz. <laughs> I, I was wondering what what movie you were going to choose. That's where I was at. Zardoz is exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for maybe uh, a Sean Connery who never tries to make these failed international British co-productions of the 70s and 80s and instead just makes a bunch of James Bond movies that everybody loves. Right. Would he have still done Russia House, right? Would he have Would he have still been a 80s and 90s um, yeah, could starring he, actor? Could he have had to come back and done a Untouchables and Hunt for Red October if he had just made 15 Bond movies? I mean, right. that's that's a fair point. Uh, it's not just lining your coffers. It really is just what you want to spend your life doing and how you want to be remembered. I guess that's right. Um, And I can see getting bored. I mean... Doing the same artwork over and over? Yeah, I can see getting bored. Well, I mean, I think of it all the time with musicians who have to, you know, in year 30 of a successful career, crisscrossing, you know, the Rolling Stones still having to play Satisfaction every night... I mean, I'm often criticized, not often, but because we don't play that often, but I've had, I've gotten letters or tweets, emails from people that are like, I went to see your concert and you didn't play those songs, anything like on the album. And I've been to concerts where I objected to the band kind of reinterpreting their hit. I went to see Dylan uh, not that many years ago and, you know, his songs were impossible even to discover the song. We've talked about this, how he will intentionally mess up the cadence so that people can't sing along. Yeah. Or just play it in a completely different way, sing it in a, in just leave out whole verses. And I felt kind of assaulted by Dylan. Although we have talked about this, right? As the, the closer I got to the stage, I watched the first 20 minutes of the show from back in the audience. And I was like, this is terrible. And then I moved up in the crowd and the closer I got to the stage, the more I was mesmerized by the show and it wasn't just that the show was evolving. It was something about the being closer to what was happening. I, I got it more and more. My most memorable live experiences are seeing songs reinvented, though. And as long as that doesn't just mean, hey, what if it turns into a reggae song, nine-minute yeah. guitar jam? Yeah, I mean, changing the vernacular of it. I mean, I don't mind. You know, Paul McCartney will do Here Comes the Sun on ukulele every night. Yeah, and that's cute. It's cute. But I... But I, I uh, like kind of reinvent the songs unconsciously, just out of necessity, right? I mean, and I think right, part is that of coping? it. No, I think part of it is you find a better way. Yeah. Right. The song that is on your record is how you did it 
after you'd played it 15 times. After you've played it 150 times, you're like, oh, what I should have done is... Well, I mean, that's the artist thinking they're finding a better way. Right. But really, I mean, I'm sure in their 20s, the Rolling Stones were doing the definitive versions of those songs, uh, even if uh, now uh, 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 even if uh, now they would do Satisfaction differently. I mean, that it, doesn't mean it wasn't perfect. If you put more swing into that riff, like... Uh, would that be better than... I can see the older ma- musician thinking so. Yeah, you right. know, right? You'd find you'd find swing to be more. You'd be here's like, wow, L- here's this Lindsey is- Buckingham deciding, re- finally realizing how some Fleetwood Mac song should go. But come on, right? He, you know, he he was probably right the first time. Yeah, age doesn't necessarily mean wisdom in a field like that, right? But uh, but it's got to be hard, right? Like, to is it dull? Can you do you check out during during the song you've? played a hundred times well it's another i mean a big question about art is is this your job yeah or are you doing uh is it some kind of spiritual religious practice if it's your job well unless you have a trust fund it's got to be your job yeah you show up and you do the thing that pays but but in his generation and in the in the first 40 years of my life the accusation of selling out was absolutely the worst thing you could throw at an artist um and all kinds of artists thwarted their success in order to avoid even the appearance of having sold out. So that was a big part of, of what it required to be an artist. And at a certain point, if love is on postage stamps and, and rolls of toilet paper, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Having accidentally become a pariah and a, a, a typographer um, – Indiana became a recluse. He left New York. He moved to a tiny island off the coast of Maine. Well, nice if you can afford it. Nice if you did a love sculpture. <laughs> well, well, I mean, this is a tiny t- It's true that this town go- does get summer traffic, but it's just a lobster fishing town. Oh, I'm, sure. Sh- I'm sure in 1970, oh, yeah, he, they, could a- he could afford a little cottage for- Pretty gross. For yeah. not much, yeah. Uh, he, I, I think he lived a very minimal lifestyle out there and essentially disappeared from the public eye. Occasionally, when he did return to prominence, it would be- because of love, uh, he wrote "vote" in that font for the DNC in, in, in maybe seventy-two. Yeah. Or, you know, some seventies election vote. Uh, you know, he started to do multilingual versions of them. Any language where love has four letters, you know, for S- Spain and Italy or Latin America, he could have a more statues and. Uh, but even there's even one in that, Hebrew as well. Even the the vote statue just kind of reinforced exactly. the fact that this is public domain artwork and you can do any four-letter word this way. Right. And that's that continued to happen. He uh, For Obama, he wrote Hope oh, yeah, in, that in was the a Love font. Big hit. At one point in the 2010s, uh, he did a Google Doodle for Valentine's Day of the Google logo merged with the Love font. Um so this is a guy who... They probably paid him more to do that than he made in every other already did. So this is a guy who's okay cashing the check, and I, you know, I, I understand that. Sure. It's, it's got to be your job. But it, the problem, I think, is that he was not a one-hit wonder. Like, this was a guy in... You know, he passed away in 2018, and there have since been retrospective shows that show he really was a great hard-edged painter, a huh. great pop artist, a talented mid-century American artist who got mistaken for a one-hit wonder right. because the hit was so catchy. Does that wait, that must happen in music. I don't I oh, don't have an example. It's absolutely true. There are so many so many uh bands that have a hit 
and then their second record is more challenging, more interesting. They, you know, they take the they take advantage of their new resources and they make something great, but there's no I guess hit, we, hit on it. I guess we talked about the zombies. Everybody yeah. knows time of the season, but uh, actually, the album is better than the single. Right. I mean, I think that um, the Jerry Rafferty record that has Baker Street on it, that entire record is brilliant. But Baker Street is such a hit. Who's ever heard the 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 other tracks, right? I mean, it's just the fact that Rumors had had six singles means that we all know every song on that record. But but Baker Street was was like it was an overwhelming forty five, and nobody learned, nobody figured out like how great that album was. Yeah, not to get too far into the rock sidebar, but I guess the whole thing of of album oriented rock meant that. You know, the Grateful Dead only ever had, you know, these great bands, Pink Floyd, great, you know, all these bands that had maybe one top 10 hit, you know, actually have millions of fans who know dozens of songs. Pink Floyd's a bad example, but the Grateful Dead, yeah, just Touch of Grey was their biggest song. I don't think Pink Floyd's that bad an example, actually, if you actually look at Billboard numbers. Oh, maybe not. But I mean, every re- every Pink Floyd record always had a single. Hmm. I guess that's true. But it's it's surprising how artists like you know Dylan only ever had one number one hit. Sure, Black Sabbath never had a song on the right on the chart, especially of punk bands. You know, one one song becomes some kind of crossover because it becomes an anthem of a TV show or something, right? And rock the Casbah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was kind of the, the both the the great success of Robert Indiana's live and the tragedy that he got bit by love. Well, you know, what that is so often in fine arts is a great boon to art collectors because they can get his work for pennies on the dollar. And then after he dies, there's suddenly like a reevaluation of his work. Plus there's more of them. I mean, if, if, if your job as an artist is to have your message seen or heard, there is some value in having your most iconic design on all Six continents, right? Right. I mean, that's the that's the end game, right? I think often after you're dead. And that concludes love. Entry 737.GA0514. Certificate number 37350 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, you've surely seen love reproduced one billion times in Hebrew, which becomes the international language of love. <laughs> it's love is now read right to left. Yeah. English is only the uh, international language of air traffic controllers. Hebrew is the language of love. Portuguese is the language of cooking. Uh, French really? is the language of uh, government. Italian is the language of bureaucracy. What what was that? Do you know that? Do you know? That, are you doing that joke? Yeah. In, in joke. heaven, <laughs> the Italians are the chefs. The Swiss are the bankers. The English are the I can't remember government, right? But then in yeah, but then in hell, the English are the chefs. <laughs> the Swiss are the lovers. Not 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 all the things are quite as funny, but right. Yeah. No, the Italians are the government. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and we like that joke because we're super racist against all the European. Yeah. The one thing you know you can be racist against is the British. Uh, at, least, at least for now, although futurelings may feel like the British are the great 
uh, the great like underserved minority of the future world. We don't know. We we can have no no idea, they, and we have no idea how long our civilization survives. We know from the Star Wars movies that the British robots eventually are, are often insulted and downtrodden by their American masters. Sure, they're enslaved. Even you know they're C three PO's got that you know kind of butler affect. Sure, and they just make him. They just yell at him. Who are the other British, him. British uh, robots? Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge from, uh, what is she in? Rogue One? Right. British. Not a robot, though. No, she, no she's, oh, she's a robot? She's the voice of the robot. Oh, right, the voice no, of the robot. No, I was mostly thinking of C-3PO. Sure. Uh, if social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, where we are making art which does not ever sell out because it's so hard-hitting and hard-edge. Are you talking about your Instagram? I'm talking about my Twitter. My Instagram is just a fun place for fun people. Slide into my DMs. We're definitely not one-hit wonders on Twitter. No, we for have, sure. We're, we're, it's just an avalanche of, of good work. There's hot takes abundant. And deep cuts. Um, you can go to my Instagram, at John Roderick. You can slide into my DMs. Send me a... Uh, Send me dirty pictures. Don't. Please, well, kind of. You should. Please help John find love. If you feel like you're somebody who could just be his companionable friend forever, yeah. Please start stalking him. Sure, stalk me and and uh, start sending him baked goods. Yeah, give me. You know, I'm a kind of like a I'm a bipolar um, person that's always taking kind of outsized risks in my personal life, and now I'm sequestered, so I can't really get into any trouble at all. I keep thinking I'm going to go to the grocery store and just start licking people it's time to arrange john roderick's marriage and we want the internet to do that we're going to crowdsource it uh you can email us with uh with you know your lengthy applications uh at the omnibus project at gmail.com uh you can go to our future links facebook page and um and compare notes with other potential uh roderick lovers and spouses and uh, you can organize a, a multi-bracket tournament to decide who will marry John. And I don't even want to limit it to, to one particular gender. I am open to all comers. That's good. Increase and, your odds. And uh, also on Reddit, where I'm more likely to get uh, trolled. And on Discord, which I do not understand. Um, you can mail us glossy headshots. And, Engagement rings. And pull Polaroid pictures taken in prison to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And I will give special consideration to any uh, to any potential lover who has donated to the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project, because that's where we have our wonderful addenda uh, special episodes where we rev- where we will review all these applications in real time and Ken will give you a one to four rating. I think we need a new donor tier. Oh. Right? Right. Like people at the $5 level are getting a bonus episode every month, but people giving more than that should be able to marry one of the hosts. Well, people getting giving more than that do get copies of our show notes or they get the original show notes in some cases. Aut- aut- no, always, aut- always autographed original show notes. Autographed show notes are sent to them in the mail. Um, we, people get to choose episodes and at a certain tier yet to be determined, or maybe Ken will decide you get to marry one of us. Do you it, want, do you want to pick a number? Hmm. And remember you have to divide it in two cause I'm taking half of it. Even if you are the only one marrying him or her. Hmm. That seems unfair. 
I feel like it should be some kind of dowry. You're doing more of the work? I think so. Well, it was my idea. Yeah. Get a royalty on that? I think I should. Well, in that case, you set the tier. Okay. For a $10,000 monthly donation, Mm. you can marry John Roderick. Did I only get half of? Yeah, sorry. I get $60,000 a year to be married to some rando? That's pretty good. You can make your house payment. All right. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, your culture will discover love. And we will be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.